0: It would be fair to say that as Christians in the West we are feeling nervous about an increased opposition towards Biblical Christianity. Our increasingly muscular, secular world seems to be getting more and more antagonistic towards those who would seek to faithfully uh, believe and trust in God's Word and what He says. People have lost their jobs uh, in various places in the West, has their businesses uh, ripped apart. People have been ridiculed. In fact, Christianity generally, when it's in the media, is somehow being ridiculed or painted in a wrong, a wrong way. And it feels like whenever there's a good example, it's just kind of airbrushed over. For our brothers and sisters globally, and for the church historically, this is, this is nothing new, this is not, this is kind of normal Christianity. We, I mean, just the past couple of weeks, there's been that awful massacre of a hundred people or so in Mali. There's many others in Nigeria. They're so common, uh, the persecution and opposition towards Christians, that it barely even makes our news over here. You have to click through several pages on sort of news websites to get there. So it's. It's nothing new to the global church and to the historic church, but to us in the West, it feels new. And it, and it feels pretty scary, actually, as we think about living faithfully as Christians, eh, raising children in the next 20, 30 years in a culture that seems to be eh, less and less favorable towards those who would hold to what the Bible says. Now, our response as Christians, is to be very clear. It's a very clear response Christians are to have in the faith of this. As well as continuing to follow Jesus, we are to respond with supernatural love and grace and good works. That's what we read about earlier in uh, 1 Peter, wasn't it? It talked about even when people are kind of accusing you of doing wrong, they've got nothing to say because, because your good works are too powerful. For them sort of to speak against. And it's, it's kind of the, the Christian life of following Jesus and taking up our cross. Let me just read to you again what we read there in 1 Peter. Reading from the second half of verse 20. If you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It goes on with a beautiful um, explanation of the gospel there. So our heritage is not to respond with anger and threats and kind of arguments in those sorts of ways. Our response is to be one of grace, of good deeds of love. And this is the Christian heritage this is what Christians have been doing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You, you think back to the, the second century. I was reading about this this week. Uh, there was, um, in the second century, everyone agreed pretty much that there was lots and lots of gods and they were all equally valid. Christians said, no, we, we believe that there is only one God. And then when, when the plague came, the big plague of Antoine, uh, there was... Uh, an assumption. It was the Christians fault. The persecution in Christians increased because this plague must be the Christians fault. They're the ones that don't pay homage to the gods. Surely this must be their fault. So they were blamed and persecuted more by Emperor Marcus Aurelius. And then things started to change when people flee the cities to get away from the plagues. But the Christians stayed and cared for those who had been opposing them. They came, they stayed in the city to care for those suffering from the plagues, even at great cost to themselves of getting the plague. There was supernatural love even when there was horrible opposition. So this is what we're called to in the face of persecution and difficulty. But I, I worry that sometimes we, as Christians in the West, um, we're not preparing to do that well Because actually what we're doing a lot of the time is not preparing to love, but actually just complaining. Talking about we're this kind of minority who are being ill-treated, and we complain rather than prepare to love. Now, there's obviously a place for speaking out, but we don't want to be those who focus on complaining rather than focus on love. And today, as we we come to God's Word, we're going to find what I think we need at this time as a church. We need the Psalms. We need the Psalms that take... God's opposed people and show them how to find faith and hope in God. We're going to look at three of the Psalms of Ascent today. I have the the joy of studying the Psalms of Ascent uh, this summer. It seems that these Psalms of Ascent, there's sort of 15 of them uh, uh, towards the end of the Psalms in the Bible. They were sung, it seems, by pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem as they kind of ascended um, the uh, the mountainous kind of hills around Jerusalem to go up to worship in Jerusalem They would sing these songs. That's what they were kind of compiled for as a sort of little book, the Songs of Ascent. Probably it was done, it was sort of assembled these Psalms in the time just after the exile. You don't need to know too much about that, except that at that time God's people were small, they were weak, they looked lame, and they were threatened. It was a difficult time to be one of God's people. And these psalms, they seem to be written in sets of three. So it seems to be five sets of three. And it starts off with one where there's trouble and they're trying to be faithful in trouble. And then there's a psalm that kind of ascends the, the sort of hill of hope and finds hope in the Lord. And then one that's rooted somehow in Jerusalem and the presence of God in Jerusalem. And it kind of it's like in a wee ascent of hope. And then they go back down and sing the next set of three as they kind of walk up. So we're going to look at three of these psalms you might have thought it was a a typo in the bulletin when you saw that we're preaching through three psalms. They're pretty short. And they um, are designed to work together, I believe. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into these psalms. Father, we thank you so much that you know exactly what's going on in each of our hearts. You know the sins we are struggling with. You know the temptations there are. You know the the struggles we have with hope, and the real difficulties that each person is going through here. And we pray, Lord, that you will pour in hope. You will pour in a deeper relationship with you today, a deeper treasuring of Jesus, that we might live in a way that really pleases you this week. Amen. So, we're going to be looking at three things to do in the face of hostility, to find the hope and the confidence that is needed to respond with love when difficulty and hostility comes. So the first thing we need to do is look up to the Mighty One, your only help. Look up to the Mighty One, your only help. Let's look together at Psalm 123. Um, If you've got a a pew Bible there, in fact I don't have the page, um, you'll find it, I'm sure. It's probably in there. Um, Psalm 123 is the first one we're going to read. I lift my eyes up to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you, Lord our God, till you show us mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. See, the psalm, it's quite a simple structure, isn't it? He says what he's doing, he's lifting his eyes to the Lord. And why? Well, because there's a need for mercy, isn't there, in verses 3 to 4. And it's not just a sort of general mercy for a sort of difficulty in life. They need mercy because they are facing hostility as God's people. That's what it says there in verse 3, isn't it? They're enduring no end of contempt. People are treating them in that horrible way, treating them with contempt. There's no end of ridicule. They're just a joke. Uh, Ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. It's like the culturally, politically, physically powerful are using that power to push down God's people and then to kind of look down at them and ridicule them uh, as they're in that low place. And as the psalmist looks to the Lord, he remembers who the Lord is to find a little glimmer of hope in this difficult situation. Do you notice know here in verse 1 what he says? He says, I lift my eyes to you. He doesn't just say God as kind of a general term. He says, to you who sit enthroned in the heavens. That phrase, sit enthroned in the heavens, one that's used uh, throughout the Psalms to speak of God's might, his power over humanity, In Psalm 115, it says, The Lord sits enthroned in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. No human can change what God does. Or or Psalm 2, that speaks of opposition to God and his people and his anointed one, it says, The Lord sits enthroned in heavens and laughs at them. It's just a comical idea that human powers could overcome God's people in a way that God did not allow. The idea that a human superpower government could wipe out a church it's like thinking that a little a little ant nest could take on the U.S. army it's just laughable isn't it that something so small could beat something so strong he looks he's, he looks up to God he remembers the Lord is enthroned in the heavens he is the mighty one and therefore he is the only hope you know it's a bit weird in verse two this sort of how, how they're looking to the Lord as a slave to the master, as a female slave to the mistress. This is is a phrase that speaks of exclusive hope. See, slaves couldn't like, couldn't go and phone their uncle in a bit of difficulty or go to the Citizens Advice Bureau or say, actually, master, you're not sorting things out for me quite the way I would like. I'm going to go on S1 jobs and find myself something new. That wasn't an option. If a slave was in difficulty, the only person who could help them would be their master. And therefore, to look to the Lord like a slave looks to the master says, you are the only one I am looking to. You are my exclusive hope. And therefore, this must be our, when, when you face difficulty, this is kind of step one. You look to the Lord only for help. It's so easy to kind of look for other ways to get away from the hostility you might face as God's people. I know for me and my family, my, my dad works in a pub and alcohol is a big part of my family. My, my, uh, they're not Christians. And when I say no to a drink in the pub because I don't want to get drunk, there's a kind of visceral change in the dynamic of the room. And I, I, and I, I hate it. But, and it would be so easy to just to go with them to avoid the hostility. But, but the Lord is the, the only hope. He is the only one who provides true, lasting hope, and therefore he must be the one we put our trust in. Similarly, in my church in London, uh, there was a a, a wonderful um, Iranian woman who had been coming to church for a while, and her sort of Muslim family were okay with her coming to church, but she became a Christian, and she wanted to be baptized, and there was a, a visceral response to this. I remember my boss, after meeting with this woman and her daughter, who was a very antagonistic towards this lady being baptized, and uh, my boss, very sort of posh Englishman, not the most emotional man in the world, close to tears, as he described, just the, the hatred and the trouble this woman was um, facing just for trying, wanting to be baptized. And it would be so easy for her just to say, okay, well, I'll not obey Jesus in that. It's just one little thing. But no, he was our only hope and therefore she was going to obey him and not look to sort of other hopes to get her way out of it. Hopes of kind of joining with those who would reject God. So that's the first thing we need to do. We need to look up, get our eyes up to the mighty God and say in your heart firmly, whatever the difficulty is, I'm going to look to him and to him alone. Secondly, as we turn to Psalm 124, we need to look back at God who always saves his people. We have to look back at the God who always saves his people. Let's read Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, sorry, a song of ascent of David. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared, against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. King David is this massive figure in the history of Israel. He's kind of like their their big king who, who got it right in so many ways. And he is leading God's people in what they should say, what they should sing, as he's kind of writing a psalm about it, but also what they should say to one another, what they should think in their internal monologue. Let Israel say this. This should be their testimony of their life. And what is it that they should say? They should say, If God hadn't acted, we wouldn't be here. The opposition to them as God's people, they would have been torn, engulfed, swept away, caught in a trap. All these different images to say they would have been beaten by the people who were trying to attack them. They were not strong enough to get through by themselves. And if you look at the history of Israel, that's very, very true, isn't it? So often, big powers are bearing down on them, and they cannot beat them until the Lord would send one to deliver them. And as, as Christians, our King Jesus says the same thing to us. King Jesus can kind of look back over the history of Israel and say, look how I and my father uh, preserved a people so that I could be their Messiah. But he can say it even more so about his own life, can't he? He himself endured opposition, hostility, and trouble that you and I cannot grasp. The powers of his own community, the religious authorities conspired with the mighty Roman government to have him crucified. There was a whole city, practically, in opposition to him, shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He was deserted by his friends, tortured by his enemies. And for a period, he was deserted even by God. As he took all of the rejecting of God that we do on himself, he bore our sins on the tree, as it said in 1 Peter, and was punished by God, rejected by God, and pushed into death. Jesus knows hostility and difficulty. And yet, he can say, God raised me up, can't he? He can say God resurrected him physically, fully from the dead, and not just resurrected him to a human life, but to the heights of glory as he sits with his father there now. If God didn't save his people, there would be no Christianity, Jesus can say to us. And Jesus can then say to us, look at my church through the past 2,000 years. So many different communities and governments and superpowers have been Seeking to stamp out Christianity, and it has only served to increase it. Persecuting Christians is a bit like trying to put a chip pan fire out with water. It just makes it grow all the more. That Roman Empire we spoke about that were kind of seeking to stamp out Christianity in the second century. Well, I assume most of you know they, they called themselves a, a Christian empire um, at some point. And as Christians, we must follow Jesus. In saying this. A vague belief that God is good and strong is not enough. We need to uh, say this in our heads, say this in our hearts, say God has preserved his people uh, for all these years, and he will continue to do so. I have to say, I feel I have regular conversations with Christians nowadays about what the kind of secular world is doing, the latest sort of person who is in the news, getting real uh, trouble for trying to follow Jesus, um, or uh, at pastors' conferences, I speak to guys who are having real difficulty. Maybe they were doing great ministry in the local school, and there's opposition against it. There seems to be a lot of talk amongst us, as conservative evangelical Christians, about the the sort of attacks there are against us, and there's talks about how hypocritical it is, how how it doesn't make sense, how it's kind of breaking down human rights, how it's not good for religious freedom. And there's there's all these sorts of discussion, and there is a place for those sorts of discussions and for flagging it and for saying when one person is persecuted for us all, hold our hands up and stand up for them. There's absolutely a place for that. I'm not discounting it. But maybe we've gone too much in the way of speaking about the difficulties that are happening to us as a community, and we don't say enough about the might of our God who has always preserved his people. Surely we should be speaking about that every time we speak about persecution of Christians in the West being on the increase, or persecution of Christians globally. We can smile and say that that God has always delivered his people. We can say, we can follow our King Jesus uh, Jesus in saying, if the Lord had not been for us, we, we would have been engulfed. And if the Lord is not for us now, we will be engulfed. But we are His people, and He is for us. Therefore, He will preserve us. And we can have confidence. We need to think like this, and we need to speak like this. If we are going to be those who respond in love, rather than get so worried about potential difficulties, that we respond in frustration and anger. So, we've kind of seen we need to look up to God exclusively as the mighty one who can help us. We need to look back to kind of how he has preserved his people through generations and generations and look back to how he most especially raised up his son who experienced more opposition than we can imagine. And thirdly, as we turn to Psalm 125, we need to look around at your God who will help you. Look around at the God who will intervene to help you. Let's read Psalm 125 together. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. For then the righteous might use their hands to do evil, Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but to those who are crooked, but to those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be on Israel. This is, this is a strange psalm, isn't it? Um, it feels like it should be a psalm that's, like a, that's a, a lament, that's complaining to God, because the do you know in verse 3 it says, the sceptre of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. That means it is at the moment. And that phrase basically means there is a, a power, a government over God's people. They're not sort of self-governed. There's a power over them. And the best way to describe that government and that power is wicked. This is a really difficult place for God's people to be. And yet, and yet the psalm's triumphant, isn't it? It's a, it's a really happy psalm. It's as if... Um, they've just won some great battle or something like that. And why is it like that? Well, because the psalmist has real trust in God. He has real trust in the Lord and knows that God will intervene to help his people. Firstly, he knows God will intervene in the here and the now. As, as they're sort of the, the pilgrims are ascending up to Jerusalem, as they're sort of walking up he um, uses sort of a couple of pictures that would make real sense to them, doesn't he? Firstly, talks about um, those who trust in the Lord, in verse 1, are like Mount Zion. So Jerusalem is built on a kind of large hill, a kind of mountain called Mount Zion. And um, it's because God intervenes to strengthen and help and deliver his people. He says, if you trust in the Lord, you're, you're like Mount Zion which cannot be shaken. Have you ever tried to shake a mountain? It doesn't really go very well, even if there's a lot of you. The only one who can shake mountains is the Lord. So, um, he says, you're you're like Mount Zion, but also, look, Mount Zion, as they walk up, they'll notice that um, Jerusalem, sort of that Mount Zion um, area, is hard to attack because it's surrounded by other mountains. Therefore, you kind of got to hike up over them if you're going to start to attack them. And it says... God's people are surrounded not by mountains, but by God as protection. Look at verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people, both now and forevermore. Those who trust in the Lord are like a mountain surrounded by mountains, as God is with them to strengthen them. You, you, might, seem, you might feel like quite a weak Christian. Maybe you're the only Christian in your school or or your family or your workplace, and maybe actually it's really difficult to follow Jesus in that place. Maybe you're finding that really tough and you feel weak and you don't know how you can keep going and following Jesus uh, when it is so difficult. Well, if you're trusting in the Lord, Jesus Christ has filled you by his Holy Spirit, and therefore you you're like a mountain surrounded by mountains. If the evil one, if those who want to stop you being a Christian think they can um, make that happen, if you are genuinely trusting in Jesus, it's like them trying to shake a mountain that's surrounded by mountains. You're in a very strong place if you are trusting in the Lord. He will hold you. He will get you through. You can trust Him. So the psalmist gets them to, to look around at the God who intervenes in the here and now to get his people through. But not only does he do that, he also will one day act decisively to fix things. Do you, do you notice that in verse, verse 3 I alluded to earlier? The sceptre of the wicked, this reign of the wicked over God's people, this pushing down of God's people, this holding them in contempt, it will not keep going forever. And it will not keep going longer than you can handle it. Do you notice that? It says at the end of verse 3, for for the righteous might use their hands to do evil. God knows how much you can cope with in your battle um, to keep following him in this difficult world. And he has promised that you will not be expected to do one bit more than you can handle. And Jesus has promised that he is coming this messed up world where the evil one has such sway, where evil people are able to push down God's people will one day be destroyed and be remade and given to God's people and they will live forever with Jesus as their king. You know, things can seem unfair and inconsistent in the here and now, but the truth is in the long run, There's no long-term unfairness in this world because Jesus Christ will one day right every wrong uh, and bless his people who do not deserve it but only will receive that blessing because he took the sin we deserve. There's no long-term unfairness. Those who kind of are seeking to have sway in this world and over God's people, it's like that. I heard it described. Like, do you know that chocolate game you maybe played as kids? You have to put on a hat, and then you put on a you, you, so you roll a six, and then you can run into the middle. You put on a hat, you put on a scarf, you put on some gloves, and you get a knife and fork, and you've got to try and eat this chocolate. You ever play that game as a child? And then, you know, they rush in, and the hat on, scarf on, and they're going to cut. And then before they've got into any of the chocolate, they're really going for all excited. Someone else rolls a six, and they're out. And that's the, the things that can look so big and so powerful um, in our world. One day they'll look back, just a, a six was rolled, a six was rolled, a six was rolled. They, they thought they were going to do this against God's people, have great power and get their way in the culture and the world. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. And one day it'll all be gone. And we'll look back over it all as, as but a moment and a breath compared to the eternity that God has with his people. And, we, we, need to, we need to know that this justice is coming so that rather than getting hit up and angry about things that are done to Christians, we, we get loving. Did you notice how Jesus managed to respond in, in, when it talked about him in, two, in 1 Peter there, how he managed to respond with such grace? It says, um, when they hurled insults in him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When you see mistreatment of God's people or you receive mistreatment, you're able not to retaliate, not to try and sort things out with your quick tongue or whatever you want to do or get all hit up because you know God will one day judge this world. You can respond with grace and pity and love as you think, I deserve the punishment the same sort of punishment that you are going to receive from God one day. And Jesus took my punishment. You may well be causing me difficulty, but actually you're going to receive punishment for that. But you can be saved. And you can long, therefore, that that person would be saved rather than getting so hit up. So for Christians, if we are going to be those who respond with love eh, in the face of opposition, hostility, ridicule, we need to know that this regime will not last forever. Justice will one day come. And therefore, we in the, in the here and now should look forward to that and reach out with compassion and love in the here and now. It, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You probably feel like, well, I'm not really, I might not be a Christian, but I'm not opposing God's people. I mean, you've come to church. That's a pretty, pretty kind thing to do, isn't it? Rather than uh, seeking to attack Christians, you've actually come along to church with a Christian Well, what you need to know is justice will come from God, not just for things done against Christians, but for all of our God-rejecting. All of the wrong that I have done in rejecting God and ignoring Him and all of the wrong that you have done in rejecting God and ignoring Him must be righted, it must be um, dealt with. Uh, As it said in verse 6 there, if you turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish all the evildoers. We all deserve to be banished from God forever. And the wonderful news that I'm delighted to be able to tell you this morning is that Jesus Christ took our sin on that cross so that we can be forgiven. And if you would put your trust in him, as I've been talking about today, it's going to be really difficult, maybe more so than I even know as I say that to you. It may be really difficult for you to follow Jesus, but you have a, a hope of eternal joys with him if you would receive that gift. So, how are we going to prepare to be those who love in the face of opposition? How, as we are Christians, going to be prepared to do that? Well, what we've got to do is we've got to know our God. And we've got to know how we can go from a place of real trouble and take that to God and find increasing hope. We've got to look up to God alone. We've got to look back to the God who has delivered his people uh, since, since the, the start of time, and we need to look around at the God who will intervene in the here and now to get you through, and will one day come and sort this world out completely. Now, why not just spend some time now uh, speaking to God in your heart before we sing our final hymn? Why not spend some time um, looking back, looking up, looking around as you pray to God?